some of these kids were born in like what 1990 and never didn't know the web never never knew what it was like to not be constantly connected to your entire social group it's just like a huge disconnect hello and welcome to terrifying robot dog i'm jonathan stark i'm kelly shaver and we're here to talk about how technology is changing the way we interact with the world this week is book club <laughs> i love that yes and we're going to talk about the inevitable by kevin kelly please stay tuned terrifying robot dog is next you know this kelly has a cousin named kevin no way <laughs> yeah coincidence i think not so this is a uh new sequence for us dear listener mm-hmm this will be our, our second TRD book club. Yes, the, the first official one. The other one was kind of an accident, but we <laughs> liked the idea. So here mm-hmm. we are again. Yes. And the big difference this time from last time is that this is a nonfiction book, so you don't have to worry about spoilers this time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't think we're going to cover anywhere near the whole book because there's a, a lot of stuff in there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, housekeeping. So last week, was last week already? Yes. Seems, yes, uh, it was last week. So we we're talking about eyeballs as a platform <laughs> for technological development. And one of the things we, I think toward the end of the show, we were sort of opining about when it might be a thing, like an actual thing. Mm-hmm. We were going sort of going through the patents and... Looking at timelines. Yeah, all yeah. that stuff. So uh, eventually on their website after the show, I discovered that they do have uh, human trials planned. They've got a procedure that's either in approval or been approved and have picked a location for the human trials for Mm -hmm. the extensible eyeball. Yes. Yes. And I noticed that's not in the U.S. It must be a lot easier to get human trials outside of the country, but apparently there's still an approval process. Mm -hmm. Yep. Is it a Boeing 747 landing at Kelly's house? Is it a is it FedEx? I think it's getting <laughs> that's that's my Amazon delivery drone bringing the new hot tub. <laughs> Edward lawnmower hands out there. He said he was done with the front yard. <laughs> um, yeah, the the location is San Salvador, El Salvador. I th- I always find it strange when when I think it's an American thing when we talk about offshore. Like that's they call it offshore human trials. They're not offshore. Like if they were offshore, they'd be it'd be in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, like in a cruise ship. I'm pretty sure El Salvador is onshore. Yeah, I'm reasonably <laughs> certain it's on landmass. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Uh, so that's just crazy. Uh, actually, taking these extensible omega capsules and putting them in people's actual eyeball. And shall we move on to talking about the inevitable? Yes. Uh, the if you don't know who Kevin Kelly is, he was I think one of the creators of Wired magazine. Certainly the editor of Wired magazine for a long time. I believe Chris Anderson was the other big name over there. And he's uh, he's been involved with technologies for like way back. He's about sixty, I think now, and was pretty instrumental at the dawn of the internet age. Uh, and and has always had a I was he has almost like an anthropological angle on all of it. So he's not like tech. He doesn't get into like nerdy stuff. I think he could go there. Mm-hmm. I think he gets that stuff, but he, that's not really what seems to interest him. He seems to be much more interested in the sociological factors that come out of tech. So he kind of has like a he has a perspective that I don't see too often. It reminds me a little bit of Clay Sharkey, if you're familiar with his stuff. He does he does a sort of similar thing where he talks about, like, okay, here's all this tech, and it's not for its own sake. Here's what it's going to do to society. I guess that's kind of what we're trying to talk about here. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. It's it's To me, it's the more, in some ways, it's the more interesting side because it's cool to think of what all the technical advances are going to be and speculate on those, but it's also really, really interesting to think about how that's going to impact us as, you know, human beings walking around on the on the earth. mm Absolutely. So lately, the big one has been artificial intelligence, where you start, you know, you're starting to see people in the field and people outside of the field, but in tech, getting a little nervous about, you know, what could happen with uh, artificial superintelligence. And we've talked about that here before. And in fact, I think we've got a good episode coming up on a particular aspect of it. But we'll just leave that as a teaser. But 
this get this book has is broken into 12 chapters and each one is focused on a particular aspect of what he sees as sort of almost subterranean level trends that are enabled by the mass networkification of the globe if you will so all of the tech advances that 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 you see you know the, the dramatic decrease in size and cost and dramatic increase in availability of chips and sensors and actuators and radios and all this low power stuff that doesn't cost a lot of money and is just like falling out of trucks. <laughs> right. It's like it's like these things are going to happen. You know, they're they're bound to regardless of. He he talks about trends that they don't rely on like one specific technology taking off. It's just looking at the general like evolution of of technology and and the cost and like you said the miniaturization and proliferation of it and all that it's like these are the things that's going to come out of it right how will humans operate in this new this completely unprecedented uh, context and mm-hmm. so yeah so he breaks it into 12 sort of i feel like he's kind of looking at the same or similar things but he focuses on a particular aspect of them and comes up with 12 sort of clever one word names for each of them like you know, becoming, cognifying, flowing, screening, accessing, sharing, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Yeah, and there are there are points in the book where it starts to sort of cross-reference itself and refer to other concepts as well. So there's a, in that sense, there's some overlap, but it, it is taking a different angles of it. Yep, and he starts off by saying that it, there's no way to talk about any of these in a vacuum, that they, they're totally interrelated. Uh, but he does manage to, I think, pull out some really insightful uh, thoughts about a bunch of them. So we, we both had the same experience, dear listener, Kelly and I, in the, the first few chapters were kind of like, yeah, no kidding. Like that, my, <laughs> my reaction was like, obviously, you know, yeah. uh, things like, you know, the cognifying chapters about, you know, everything that sort of, we've been saying for a long time, everything that can have a chip in it will have a chip in it. And then it was like, everything that can be connected to the internet will be connected to the internet. Will be connected. Yeah. And what his sort of, Next stage of that is every everything will have artificial intelligence in it. And it might not be like a, a deep blue or HAL super intelligence. It might just be a little bit of smarts that are injected into your razor or your lawnmower, for example. And in fact, calling it intelligence might be overstepping a little bit. It might be, uh, I would say, awareness more than intelligence. Yeah, I, I agree. It reminds me of the last TRD book club when we talked about the difference between the machine intelligent bots and the or now I'm forgetting the name of it the sort of human based human intelligence yeah yeah so in the in that book little drones that's kind of walked around and investigated stuff or maybe had a little scraper or scissors to to grab samples of things they weren't that smart you had to give them direction but then they could kind of figure out how to do stuff so you'd be like oh go, yeah. get me, go get me a sample of the grass clippings for example and it would be like all right and and as long as you didn't micromanage them they could go figure out how to you know get out of the house and go down the stairs and go over what you meant and grab some of it and figure out how to carry it back and but they didn't have goals or personality or anything like that yeah uh, they weren't i would say that they weren't well, sentient, they kind of, I didn't, I don't, they didn't uh, care. <laughs> they didn't care. That's a great, that's a great way to put it. They they could sense things. So I guess they are sentient, but, but they didn't care. That's a perfect way to put it. And I, I can, I mean, you can see the, the coolness of that. You know, I, I can see the coolness of having lots of stuff that is currently not connected to the internet, connected to the internet. You know, all caveats, of mm-hmm. course. So, like, then all of a sudden your stove or your guitar is hackable, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. But still, it would be cool to be able to... Man, do I want to be able to Google my house. I want to be able to Google my house so bad. What, do you want to ask it where you put stuff? Yeah. Yes. Because because the the situation is that it is so easy and, and inexpensive to buy something that it makes economic sense for me to just buy a new thing than search through my basement for it. I, we spent an hour two days ago looking for the deed to our house because it wasn't with the other house papers. Mm. And it's like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. if I could have just Googled where did I put the deed to my house. <laughs> yeah. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I was thumping on the table while we were recording. Mm-hmm. And you were like, you're like, you got to do something about that. And I was like, oh, no problem. I've got a spider mount. I'll be damned if I can find it. <laughs> And I don't know why I didn't just order. I mean, I, I was like, I know why I didn't. I was like, I'll stop pounding on the table and that'll solve the problem. But 
Yeah. I have no idea where it is. And if I really wanted it, I would have, after about 10 minutes of looking, I would have just ordered one off Amazon and it would have been there yeah, like one it, day. It's cheaper. You would have just, I mean. Yeah. If my time has any value. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I've said her before, I'm like, do I pay $3 to rent this video on Amazon or do I go get up and go to the living room and try and look through our huge collection with my bad eyesight and find the DVD? I don't, I'm even worse than that. I go like this. Did I buy this or rent this movie the last time? <laughs> and, and a corollary, did I do it on Netflix? Or no, you don't do it on Netflix. Did I do it on uh, Amazon or, or iTunes? YouTube or... <laughs> right. And, ah, who cares? It's, is it on Netflix? Yes. Okay, great. Is it on... No, it's not there. Okay, just buy it on Amazon. Just rent it again. Right. <laughs> Erica's like, why don't you buy that? We're going we're gonna to watch it probably a hundred times, like Moana. That There's a new Disney movie. She's like, the kids love that. We're probably going to watch it a hundred times. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to know where I bought it. I'm going to remember where it is. <laughs> yeah, I got to remember. Not even, yeah, like where it is digitally. <laughs> like what service yeah. I used. I'll just re-rent it. This is where you need an AI that'll connect to all those movies. And you can just be like, you know, hey, Frank the AI, I want to watch this movie. <laughs> and, and Frank will go, oh, you don't own it. Or it'll say, oh, you own it on whatever, and it'll just show it to you. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem, I think, with the walled garden aspect of stuff like the iTunes, iTunes. store yeah. and and even to a certain extent Alexa because, oops, <laughs> Alexa because the um, it's limited to certain, you know, it's not like all my stuff. Right. There's no holistic view of all my stuff. Right. So anyway, so I, I can certainly imagine wanting to have things connected. Now, if they were a little bit smart, like you're saying... And they could sort of autonomously do the grunt work of being me. <laughs> that would be so great. Uh, but it's like, oh, you're you're on your way home. You normally you, you cook dinner at this time, and you're five minutes away from the house. Let's start preheating the oven. Yeah, exactly. There's just a ton of things that that are all small conveniences on their own, but I feel like they would add up to an extremely powerful user experience mm-hmm. in aggregate. So, the, you know, there, are, I feel like, like we were saying, there's a bunch of stuff that for an audience like us is maybe a little bit like, yeah, I mean, this does seem inevitable. I, I, this is not super shocking. He, even in those sections, though, he does have an ability to kind of uh, get to a bigger picture a little bit, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is cool. I think that people, this is probably a really good book for maybe people who aren't as in tech as we are. So, dear listener, this might be a good gift for your non-geeky friends. Because it's not... I don't think it's geeky at all. It's very readable. No, I don't, I don't think so. There's, there's, there's nothing in it that really discusses a, a particular technology in any sort of technical detail. It's all more abstract. Yeah, and, the, and, and a cool thing that I, I really like about it is he gives examples from... It's very current. So, he gives current mm-hmm. examples of like, you know, there were... I don't remember the number. I think, you know, 80 billion transistors shipped last year. Yeah. Or he'll say, you know, the number of the number of images, he'll be in, in the sharing chapter, he'll be talking about the number of images posted to Facebook in a day. And so he, he'll he share numbers on things, which gives you a sense of scale and can be pretty breathtaking in a lot of cases. And, and they're just easy to understand for somebody who's uh, not really, you know, doesn't know the difference between HTML and HTTP. Okay, so the, the first chapter that really blew my mind was chapter four, which is called screening. And this is one of the, I think one of the more strenuous applications of his, uh, <laughs> of his naming concept here. Cause I don't know if I would, it's, it's a strange word to use for what he's talking about, but, uh, he, it's about the proliferation of screens and that they're, that we're just getting started. There could be screens, screens and screens and screens. There could be screens on screens, screens <laughs> everywhere because the prices are going to fall. And he, and he comes up with some really novel examples because he'll take stuff to its logical extreme and he'll be like, okay, every possible configuration of a screen is this matrix of things. Therefore, all of these will exist. I thought I thought that was a little bit funny because we talk a lot about using the internet and and using this technology and stuff in interfaces other than screens. Mm-hmm. So no, I don't I don't think, and I think that's going to happen too. I just don't think it's going to be at the exclusion of screens. I still think screens are going to be everywhere because that is oftentimes the most efficient way to just relay a bunch of quick information. Sure, like the weather. I mean, it's much quicker to just like glance at a screen, and it, yeah, yeah, it is it is true. I do find myself backpedaling in conversations where people are like, well, screens aren't going to go away when I'm talking about conversational computing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah, yes, I agree that they're not going to go away. I'm just saying that 
that it's a new kind of computing that is just coming out of, not coming out of nowhere, but it's just a completely new kind of interaction with uh, the super brain, you know? And yeah. it's and, and I think that it's an s- extremely natural one in many, many ways, especially for, you know, non-literate people, which brings us back to the point, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is that before the Gutenberg press, he describes humans as people of the word, where it was an oral culture and the word was everything. If someone didn't tell you a story directly, you didn't know it. There was there was no way to store thoughts outside your body, really. I mean, cave paintings and and that sort of thing. But so then the then te- there then there was this technological revolution where uh, you know movable type, and all of a sudden you could print stuff for cheap, re- you know, relative for for like hand copying things. So over a relatively short period of time, we became what he refers to as people of the book. So people of the word, the spoken word, and then the technology revolution of the printing press, we became people of the book. And this is where my mind really got blown because as he lays out all of the effects of that technological revolution on society, it was really eye-opening for me because Mm -hmm. it's, it's shocking how many everyday things are enabled by ink printed on paper. Yeah, things that you didn't think about. Yeah, like, uh, oh, I don't know, science, law. Uh, Medicine. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, I mean, the list goes on. It's like what – and so here's the, here's the cool thing about it. It's like the basic premise of that – of the book medium, which includes everything from comic books to, you know, tabletop photography books, any, anything that was really between two covers, a phone book. Uh, it had permanence. It was done. You knew if you came back to page 75 of the first edition of Profiles and Courage, in 10 years, it was still going to say the same thing it said 10 years ago. And if somebody else has the first edition of Profiles and Courage, it's going to say the same thing on page 75. Yeah. Just the nature of atoms, you know, in that in this phase anyway, the book phase, it's unchanging. And he makes a pretty strong case for saying that that had a a not subtle, but a very fundamental impact on society and the way that we thought about truth and authority. I mean, the word authority comes from author. Yeah, you never, I never thought about that. No, I didn't either, but that's a good point. It does. But having, having the stuff written down, once it's on paper, that gives it permanence and, and therefore that's going to give it authority because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, it is the way it is. It's, it's right there. <laughs> right. It's kind of like a fact. This says this. <laughs> and, Mm-hmm. And there's no, and because of that, I think people approached creating books in a way that would kind of ensure that they were right. So approaching, you know, I'm not going to say there anything is perfect just because it's written down, of course, but it would be attempting to approach perfection because it was going to be an extremely long-lived thing. Yeah. So a lot more care would go into, theoretically, a lot more care would go into the creation of a book in a traditional sense than might go into, let's just say, an email or a blog post. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Um, that's like I'm watching. I'm, I don't know. I don't know if you have read. I think I might have sent you a, a, the first book, but I don't know if you have read the, the Expanse series. No, not yet. Maybe, maybe that can be a future. <laughs> yes. It's, it's excellent. And I'm also watching the TV show. Hmm. And the TV show has of course, has changes from the book. But in addition to just changes that are going to make it more condensed and, and easier to portray the story from television, on television, there are, there are also subtle changes to like character interactions and behaviors and relationships and, and world setting and all, and all of that sort of thing. And it's like, you know, die, diehard readers of the book are, of course, complaining. But at the same time, it's like, well, yeah, but now we have we have this opportunity to go back and experiment and try all these other things and see how characters react to this stuff, or and, you know, and maybe make this part of the story better or, or that kind of thing. Mm. Well, yeah, and that leads right into the 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 next phase, which is people of the mm-hmm. screen. So as people, you know, it's a slow sort of tectonic shift where there's a generation or generations of people alive who have grown up with this mentality that is more based on books than 
than something innately human, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So like I grew up with books and they were a mm-hmm. big deal and they were all around me and they, they are, the American society was founded on documents, printed, written documents and books and, you know, legal tomes and so on and so forth. So of course it's like fish and I'm like a fish in water where like, oh, this is just the natural state of things, which is that, you know, people are literate. There are books, they are fixed, you know what I mean? Like the ideas, yeah. it, it almost like the, the fixedness of a book almost extends to the thoughts captured there. So it's almost like the thought takes on this permanence. So like uh, if somebody makes like a, a proclamation or something, it almost gives the idea and the concept, which should be a malleable thing. It almost makes it permanent because it always has to kind of adhere to this unchanging thing that's in the book. That's just mind blowing to me. But as this, as that shift happens in man, I've got a front row seat with a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Oh yeah, you do. They are not people of the book. They are people of the screen. And man, we could get into a whole screen time with kids thing. Uh, But, you know, because that's like a no-no to give Mm. kids too much air quotes screen time. Uh, But that... I think that term was invented. I know that term was invented around TV specifically. Yeah. And interacting with an iPad has almost nothing to do with sitting in front of the boob tube. It's it's very different. Almost nothing. Although I know many people who think it's exactly the same. Right. Yeah. All screens are created equal in many people's minds. So the thing is, they are never, I mean, they, you know, Cooper's reading, but that's just one small thing that he that he one small interaction that he has with outside ideas Mm -hmm. and the vast majority of his interaction with outside ideas probably has more in common with the oral culture that preceded literate yeah it probably does because he's watching these informative videos and and i mean yeah I'd, i'd imagine he gets a lot of a lot of those exposure to ideas through youtube and watching videos of other people mm hmm yeah, and he he talks to the computer to find stuff. He says, uh, you mm-hmm. know, search for or Maggie. Maggie's three. She's searching for Paw Patrol in the <laughs> U- YouTube for Kids app, and it comes up, and she's talking to it and like laughing or just watching like the videos that they have. Videos that interest kids are so weird. Yeah, but you know, but they're it's entertaining, and it's and the thing about it that's different for me with TV is that it's totally interactive. It's constantly fresh. It's always changing. It's much more communal in the sense that the in many many cases the audience is not just the audience they're also creating their own stuff and shows Mm -hmm. and they've got their own audience but they're also giving feedback to the creator of the particular thing which who then incorporates it into the next day's vlog or whatever right so it's it's not real time by any means and it's certainly not one to one but it's it's the opposite of permanent. It's like super fluid and and malleable and interactive. Not in a direct way, but it is definitely interactive. Yeah, it's it's constantly evolving or evolving based on feedback and and the opinions and things within the community. And uh, I think you get more invested in it, and you come to care about. Like I can I can read a great book and I can care about the characters because they're great characters. But if I'm it's it's different than watching a YouTube video and and caring about the content that's being created on the YouTube video because oh you get to you get to like you get to know the person like the actual person. Mm-hmm. It's it's different than like watching an actor on a screen and and being invested because you like a character. Yes. So there that that didn't occur to me until you just said that. But Erica used to be super into blogs. She must have had 200 blogs bookmarked in her browser that she would sort of cycle through. And it it was like, uh, instead of reading newspapers or magazines or whatever, she'd go through these blogs. And that is Mm -hmm. completely stopped. Probably, you know, got kids around and stuff. It's a different situation. But now she's super into knitting and she is super into vlogs. Yeah. So all these knitters, they call them podcasts, but they're video. It's it's exactly what you just said. You're you are getting to know uh, a person on a surprisingly intimate level. Mm-hmm. I mean, here we are, podcast. We're doing the same thing. Yeah, we are. We are. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll watch a video and, and I'll enjoy it because the content is interesting. But at the same time, I'll be like, oh, I, I hope this works out, for, out well for him. He's a, a you know, a, a genuine nice guy. And when somebody gets to like, oh, I've, I've got a million subscribers, I'm able to do this full time and move into my studio and because you guys have supported us, you know, you feel it's like, oh, well, you know, good for them. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I mean, it's I feel like the word meritocracy gets thrown around a lot and maybe in a not a great way but it's kind of like that it's like or it's it's bigger than i think how it's normally used so if somebody's you know the cream flows to the top on the internet or you know the 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 mm-hmm. whether it's good or bad i suppose uh, but stuff mm-hmm. floats up stuff that's of interest stuff that's useful and in this particular context i guess the it might just be the person's personality it might have very little to do with you know the knitting pattern that they're working on it could just be that they're utterly hilarious person or Mm -hmm. quirky or creative in in ways that are that come out in the conversation but aren't directly represented in like you know like this how-to knitting video that they're doing it is to imagine how uh engaging that is for you know an adult a 40 year old adult you know it's far this is it's like a hundred times better than tv yeah the this these sort of amateur poorly lit knitting videos that you can barely hear a hundred times better than anything you than than the vast majority of things on TV. I mean, I watch way more YouTube than I do Netflix. Yeah, yep, it's crazy. So imagine what it'll be like for this next generation of you know kids that are just kids, people who are kids now, and the conflict that will arise between people who grew up in the book way of thinking versus this new sort of more fluid way of thinking, the screening people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that has a, a it's a I mean, there's always a gener- generation gap where like, you know, cranky old guys like me shake their tiny fist at the universe and tell the kids to get off their lawn. But I feel like this has a this specific thing is really at the root of a lot of the a lot of the things I see working with in my actual job with clients who are trying to attract millennials. So like 60 ish level age, you know, 60 ish year old executives trying to make their brand or their business or their product appealing to millennials in their 20s and early 30s. And they just haven't got the whiff of a clue <laughs> yeah. of how to do it. And and normally flatly reject any suggestion I might make in that direction. Not always, but often they're like, that no way will that work because it's offensive to their sensibilities. But their sensibilities were forged in a in a in a book world and these younger yeah i mean like some of these kids were born like what 1990 1980 85 90 and never didn't know the web you know never never knew what it was like to not be constantly connected to your entire social group right and it's just like a huge disconnect yeah, that's like I see I see parents complaining that are like, oh, my kid never has any friends. All they do is sit around and, on the Internet. And I'm like, well, what do you think they're like, doing? Yeah, your kid does have friends. What do you think they're doing on the Internet? It's like, but they're not real people. Uh. It's like, yeah, just because you're not hanging out in the same physical like hmm. space doesn't mean you're not having real and genuine interactions. Yep. Yeah. I, I often have told this story on the podcast about how the kids down in our, our we have this campsite in the summer we go to mm-hmm. and there's a a wide range there's a smooth spectrum of like infants to octogenarians there yeah and everybody mangles it's not there's no real segregation based on age and the kids will you know at the end of the day the kids will be sitting on the bench it's called and it's like this giant sort of giant picnic table thing sort of in front of the basketball net at courts and they'll just sit there and they're all talking but they're Mm -hmm. all on their phones talking to each other so like so There'll be a, a, a meat space conversation going on, and then there's a cyberspace conversation going on with the same people, and maybe some right. people that aren't there. But it's happening at like two or three levels. I I'm, I don't know this, but I would be shocked if there weren't subcategories where some of them were in Snapchat and Instagram and having two different conversations with different uh, subsets of the group. Mm-hmm. About different things. I mean, they're wildly social. They're so much more social than I ever was as a kid. I mean, it's it's like oh yeah, almost no comparison. So anyway, the 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 big thing I think is, and perhaps we're seeing this play out right now 
in the uh, fake news stuff, what's true, right? Because if you lose the permanence of ink on paper, how do you, like, if, if nothing's ever done, you know, if, if, a, if a, a bunch of sentences can just be changed at any time from anywhere, like, what's, it feels how, like how, it's, do you, how do you trust it? <laughs> yeah, it feels like it messes with, or, or perhaps is the underlying, uh, the, the thing that underlies some of the higher level trends or I guess, yeah, higher level trends that we've talked about before about trust, identity, uh, and, and truth, you know, like how can you, how can you believe a thing, you know, even if, even if it's done non-maliciously. So like, you know, I blog, you blog. And I, I've had a situation where I'm like, okay, I, this blog post has been around for a little while and it needs to be revised. Right. Because the information that's in it is now totally wrong. Yeah. Or I've learned that I could have done something differently or. Mm. Yeah. And well, he kind of brings that up, though, because if we get to the point where he's talking about the proliferation of screens and screens being everywhere and all of this data being connected and networked. And, and in that, he also talks a lot about um, the hyperlinking between various bits of information. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, if you come across an article and you're reading it and it's, you know, there's, there's no links to other sources or anything like that, then maybe you're not going to trust it. But if you've got an article that's, that's full of links to other things that can support and, and I guess lend, lend some, some backing and maybe some authenticity to it, then maybe you're going to be more likely to trust it. And which to an extent is, I mean, I can see that as being true, but I can also see that as being maybe not the case because if you've got a, a large group of like radical wrongly or thinking people or whatever, sort of collaborating on, on building this big this web of lies, web of lies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but to a degree, the amount of, well, I mean, it's, it's the same with like the Google search algorithm and the amount, the amount of people that find this thing useful is, is how you're going to lend credibility to these things. Mm. It's, I, I agree with that. And I think that that like, I think that that's already at play in a lot of places mm -hmm. and for, for good and bad. As, you know, like Twitter bots all retweeting the same articles that all reference different articles that all go back to the same source on whatever one of those sites are, Breitbart or whatever. And there, or you see the same thing with, um, I, have a, I have a friend that does a conspiracy theory sort of podcast. Uh, that's actually not what it's about at all, but he, it, but he talks about conspiracy theories r relatively often. Mm -hmm. And, and he, we were recently chatting on Twitter and he said that it, he's seen that sort of, you know, some source story about Area 51 or something like that, you know, some government conspiracy, some evidence, air quotes, of a government yeah. conspiracy that uh, all source back to the same debunked article from 1965. Right. It, it goes viral and it gets wildly popular and there's links to it all over the place. But if you trace it back. It's all the same original yeah. lie. Yeah. And that's that's putting a lot of responsibility on the user to have to do that research on everything they read. Oh, yeah. I mean, I read a book called uh, Trust Me, I'm Lying, mm -hmm. which will change the way you read anything ever, especially in mainstream news. And I'm from a newspaper family, and so I already knew that the newspaper was not... I already knew that there were often major mistakes in the newspaper and it, from being behind the scenes. And that, yeah, maybe they'll come back and correct them, but whoever sees that, you know, the next day and the, you know, and... And they're trying to do the right thing. So if you get people who are not trying to do the right thing right. to that, that know how to game the system and can play on that uh, appearance of credibility by linking to a bunch of stuff. And, you know, you make a I, the, the author, Ryan Holiday, he explains exactly how to do this. You write an article based on some shred of truth. You mischaracterize what the linked article says but link to it anyway because no one's going to read it right so it looks like you have all these links you know to sort of like footnotes in a way like like you know an underlined or a linked sentence that links out to let's say a new york times article is gonna if you don't actually read it it's pretty easy to mischaracterize what the times article says right because people aren't going to read it you know, or, or a large chunk of the people aren't going to go and be like, well, wait a second. This this guy was kind of not really what the Times article said or meant. Even the article he links to is is different. Yeah, no one's people. People don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so what does it get back to this? I feel like we're going to spiral into an old topic, which is that 
it comes down to trusted individuals. So people, and, and not not like not anointed by the government, for example, but mm-hmm. just someone who, through virtue of your interactions with them over time, whether they're whether they're uh, asymmetric or symmetric, you will eventually start to trust this person more because you've been listening to them or talking to them for a long time, and therefore you're gonna you're gonna. It's not that you you trust an article, you're going to trust the person who wrote the article. Right. Because they've built up a reputation which they would stand to lose by violating the trust that has been placed in them. Uh, but then you get into the identity thing. Like, how do we prove who anybody is anyway? It all it all spirals down from there. And this is one of the 12 topics of the book. Mm. So as, as is often the case, the answer to everything is blockchain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so at least we have that. All right. So... I just loved that. I just love that whole bit about people of the book versus people of the screen, and and yeah. kind of opening my eyes to how much of current American society is built on a foundation of literacy and and printed material. It's or you know or written, but you know just like ink on paper. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really mind blowing, especially since I've said it. I, I could imagine it going away. So. What happens then? There's a point. There's still, it's kids in school today. Still, it's like you can't use Wikipedia as a reference. You need to have and find an actual book when you're when mm. you're doing your research paper. Mm. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so all you do now is you go to Wikipedia for your topic and you look at the bibliography section at the bottom to get your sources. <laughs> oh man. So I I thought that was really cool. Another one. Were there, I have a, another one that I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um perhaps talk, worth talking about briefly. Uh, were there any others that really stood out to you? Um, the sharing society was really mm-hmm. interesting to me. Yeah, that was cool. That's not yeah. the one I was going to say. So what, so what were the, what was the, the things that struck you about the sharing one? Just the, the idea of, I guess, individual as, as individuals having less ownership of things and, and being okay with that just because of the, the greater public availability of all of the stuff. And if your data is portable and can move around with you, then, you know, you don't need to own a computer. Or if you're, like, the places you visit and the habits you have for, for getting around and doing things follow you around, you don't need to own your own smart vehicle. You can just hop into any of them and you know, connect your, your information. And, and, you know, just there's the all kinds of things that, that we own and have now to to get around and do things and go about our lives just that it's we don't need to own them it's all about like i own a computer because and it's got my stuff on it or i didn't i didn't I yeah just, yeah well right but like right now the switching costs are the, the convenience mm-hmm. factor makes owning make sense for lots of things and you're actually talking about the accessing chapter which is the one i which was the other one i was going to talk about yeah there's there's some overlap later in the sharing with the accessing and and yeah so yeah yeah. that's true so the that things like self-driving cars and uber and uh what else spotify and even your like shared office spaces and yeah Mm mm-hmm uh, he, but he takes it to the like a logical extreme and does this sort of little day in the life of a person in, I, don't know, I think he said like 50 years, mm-hmm. and talks about how everything that you think of as your stuff could totally turn into a service. So everything, like including your clothes, mm-hmm. so that, you know, how often do you, do you use that uh, fancy Chanel handbag, Kelly? <laughs> <laughs> Not every day. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna use my my beat up brown bag with the sci fi patches on it. <laughs> Probably every day. But if you think about the stuff that you have, like earlier, I was talking about my spider mount or whatever. Yeah. Stuff that stuff that you don't use on a daily basis, or he called uh, he he referred to them as refreshables. Mm-hmm. So things that need to be either replaced or um, you know, so clothes was an example where he had he had a node he called it, which is basically a box where he would leave his stuff and some of the stuff would be uh, tagged his. Yeah. Some of it would be. Yeah, like his favorite shirt would go out and would get cleaned and it would come back. But right. the shirts that weren't tagged would, would go out and, and then like this AI would say, oh, you, you like this particular t- style of clothing and it would, it would like just like give you some clothes back in your size. Yeah, so maybe you're into vintage t-shirts or maybe you're into Star Wars or maybe both. And if you imagine a, a virtual assistant... AI enabled that has access to uh, your 
communications. So like your, mm-hmm. your text messages, your browser history, your contacts, your GPS location, all of these things. It's a ton of data. I mean, that's, if there was, if there was a, a, an artificial intelligence that had access to that, it would know more about you than you or anybody who knows you knows about you. Right. It's like, oh, you're going to a wedding this weekend. I better give you something nice to wear today. <laughs> right. And if you throw in, you know, 50 years from now, if you throw in delivery drones and, and, all, you know, all of that, then you get to this place where the convenience level shifts. It becomes inconvenient to own clothes Mm -hmm. because then you got to wash them. Who's going to wash them? Who's going to fold them? Who's going to put them away? That one thing, one fancy outfit that you wear maybe once a year and you have to store in your closet for the other 364 days. Yeah. How many, how many coats do I have? I'm just waiting for the perfect weather to wear my, my favorite leather coat, but it's never the right weather. I wear that thing. Like I've probably worn my favorite leather coat. I have probably worn 10 times. (laughs) It was probably 500 bucks. And I'll bet you I've worn that thing 10 times. It's ridiculous. But that's, I mean, I feel like that's a fringe. Well, I mean, for, I don't know, it's, maybe it's not. I was going to say maybe it's more of a guy-girl thing. But, you know, go to a wedding or a funeral. I don't need that suit the rest of the time. Right. You know? So, or, or even work shirts, uh, stuff like that. I know when Erica, when she was a corporate drone like me, mm-hmm. uh, she would drop, she'd go to Nordstrom and drop 500 or 1000 bucks on an outfit for a meeting the next day and then probably never wear it again. Right. Yeah. I mean, I work from home. All I need on a regular basis are sweatpants and oversized t-shirts. <laughs> Increasingly oversized, by the way. <laughs> so it's okay. So the, my, the clothing thing probably sounds a little far-fetched, but we're completely seeing this already with Airbnb and Uber. This exact same yeah. dynamic. If you live in an area where there's a thriving Uber business, you know exactly what this is like. I, I, why would I buy another car? It makes no sense. I mean, yes, we have one car, but it's a four person family. And typically, at least in our neighborhood, you're going to have two cars. Mm -hmm. There is no good reason for us to have two cars. It makes no sense whatsoever, financially or otherwise. I mean, there, I've got at least three options not counting regular cabs, but I can, four, four options. I have a, a limo service that I use sometimes for the airport, although I've used it a lot less since Uber came to town. They're super reliable. They're unbelievable. Uh, you know, I, I usually use them when I have a really, really early flight and I know that I'm going to be, you know, deliriously tired. And, and they'll wake you up. They'll text you if you oversleep because they're at the house. Uh, I use Uber almost, it's embarrassing, but like lately I've been working up until the last minute at the office and taking an Uber home almost every night. And, uh, even though it's only about a mile yeah. and, uh, and then what's the last zip car and there's zip cars like all over the place near me. So if there, for some reason I needed to, to, I don't know, go to Vermont for the weekend or whatever, mm-hmm. just 50, 50 bucks, just go over to a car that's sitting there and, and enter some stuff on my phone and drive away. It makes no sense for me to own a car. Right. So you, you could imagine that extending to other things. Yeah, we're not we're not there yet where I live, but I can totally see like in places where there's both good public transportation and other options like that. There, there's no just no need to own a vehicle. Mm. My my neighbors my neighbors went in on a snowblower. We talked about going in on a snowblower last mm-hmm. year or two years ago. We didn't actually do it, but we talked about doing it. Mm-hmm. So you can see the same thing for I don't know ride on lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can really see it because if you could coordinate the the kind of logistics of sharing the stuff mm-hmm. it, you know which is i mean really that's uber's genius like no they didn't do anything they didn't use any technology or do anything that couldn't have been done right years before right they just have software that manages the logistics of it right so you could easily do the same thing with lawnmowers i'm sure there's an uber for lawnmowers and, and power tools like uber for your garage there's probably one for uh stuff in your kitchen yeah so like we've got the stand mixer that eric Eric uses sometimes, but not all the times. Well, that's like we've got this shed outside of our house and, you know, we need to get it painted and, well, we need to buy the stuff and paint it. And we were saying, Rich was saying we have to go buy a ladder. I'm like, well, no, there's the equipment rental place at the end of the road. We'll just go there and pay 12 bucks to rent a ladder. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's all kinds of stuff that, you know, that, that you can rent and, and subscribe to and things now. I mean, you could even get subscription meals and subscription groceries. and. Yeah, we did that for Christmas. Yep. So it's... That one is, I think, generationally, that one is is a uh, a deal breaker for a lot of people. I think older, you know, maybe I'm just imagining this, but I feel like older folks would be like, just can't even wrap their head around that. 
the idea of not owning your stuff. Of not owning your stuff. Yeah. Well, well, I don't. I think the older the older generation and and the people who already have stuff. Like I have a lot of stuff that I own that logically I can understand that I maybe don't need to own it, but on an emotional level I do want to own it because it's like I worked hard to get it. You know? <laughs> mm, yeah. I feel like the the sort of a. a this is a huge broad stroke, but mm-hmm. the the millennial aged people that I know are really mobile, mm-hmm. digital native type of people, and they are they have that kind of Steve Jobs attitude about stuff, or even the Buddhist attitude about stuff, which is like each possession I own is but a stone around my neck. Yeah, and maybe it's just the guys and gals that I know, but they are not into conspicuous consumption. They'll drop a ton of money on like like a luxury thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, a five thousand dollar lounge chair or or something like that. But at least the ones I know are not into just going to Target and buying a bunch of tchotchkes to put around their house. Yeah, they hate that. Yeah, I'm I'm somewhere in the middle. Like I'm constantly my my desire to minimize the amount of stuff I own is constantly at war with my desire to own the cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a surprising source of stress. <laughs> but <laughs> well, like your game cabinet. Yeah. You don't use those all the time. No, I don't use them all the time, but I I like that they I like that they're mine. You know, it's it's weird. It's I used to feel that way about my music though. Yeah, like if we had a place here that was a, a huge like let's say library full of board games and I could just go and pick up the one I wanted to play for the evening. Hmm. You know, maybe maybe I wouldn't care as much. Um or or if it could be delivered to your door in 30 minutes or less like a pizza. Right. Yeah, but I I can't even get pizza delivered in 30 minutes or less, so. <laughs> I can't even get pizza delivered. Well, you live in the People's Republic of Kentucky. Yeah, so. I'm, they have a delivery radius of five miles and we're 5.1. I can go to the end of the road and get pizza. Uh, uh, well, there you have it. So <laughs> the it's it's easy to find examples of this that I'd be like, no way will anybody ever subscribe to their underwear. But <laughs> And yet. And yet, it's easy to think of things I subscribe to now that I younger me was like, no way would I ever not own my music or, or no way would I ever not have a car or, or why would I subscribe to Kindle Unlimited instead of just going out and buying a book? Yeah, that's another one. But yeah, so, and, and, and the point is it's creeping in at the places where the, the, that are sort of at a tipping point or Mm -hmm. perhaps becoming enough of a nascent market that there's a business there. And to imagine extending that is really easy. It's really easy to see people who grew up. I mean, what was the what, what did Cooper say? Oh no, it was. I thought it was related, but it wasn't. The other day, I, I used the word stereo in front of Cooper, and he was like, "What's a stereo?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. It, you know, the idea of a you know when in college, like my roommates, we had five thousand albums, like mm-hmm. LPs, in a gigantic. It took up the entire living room. Just these like records, you know. And he, he's probably never seen a record. I know he's seen CDs, uh, but he's definitely never used one. Yeah. And the closest he's come to that is like occasionally putting a a, a disc into the Wii U. But man, he's not gonna he's not gonna have this attachment to certain things that I might have an attachment to. Like, come to think of it, I do have. Well, I own them though. I was gonna say I have. There's this thing called Man Packs, which sends you like subscription socks and underwear. Right, but you keep them. You don't send them you, back. Yeah, but I also don't. I don't keep them as long as I would. Right, because you're getting replacements. Yeah, I get fresh ones. Like I would let them go. To, like not to talk about my old underwear. <laughs> you know, you're not gonna wait until the elastic's completely gone. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> until it's like a problem. You're like, ugh. Yeah, talking talking about airing your dirty laundry on the podcast. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> but yeah but i subscribe to underpants like i didn't even think of that till just now <laughs> and socks and t-shirts and all that stuff you just get mm-hmm. like a fresh batch yeah so you could you could imagine uh, a pickup service that took the old ones well here's a here's a great one blast from the past i you know like i said earlier i grew up in a newspaper family when i moved back to rhode island in 2006 we got a subscription to the local paper where my dad worked his entire adult life. And we eventually got rid of it because we now had this disposal problem. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do with these stacks and stacks of newspapers? Yeah. I thought you were going to go down the Columbia Record Club road at one point. There. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I, I would be so surprised. I, I'm curious, dear listener, how many people even know what that is? <laughs> I guess it's a pretty big deal. Uh, but yeah, 
we just was like, what do we do? That's the reason I canceled the subscription to that paper was because we didn't know what to, we were just, it was so annoying to have all of this garbage being delivered to the house. Like you read it once, it's immediately garbage. Like, what am I going to use it for? Yeah. We don't have a, a birdcage. Yeah. That's like, a, that's like the other day I went out and I'm like, I'm getting reusable shopping bags. And um, on the one hand, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's better for the environment. But my motivation was not, and, and maybe this is wrong of me, but my my motivation was not, oh, this is better for, for the environment. My motivation was, I'm tired of throwing away all this garbage all the time. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's, it's just junk. <laughs> it's annoying. Right. So we do the same thing. Like I'll get paper bags sometimes just mm-hmm. to like have some starter for the fireplace, but that's right. about it. <laughs> but yeah, we have like reusable bags and stuff. So it's kind of like, I don't know. It's the book, to bring it back to the book, the book is about these deep underlying trends that seem inevitable, hence the title, because it's, it's, they seem like the way that humans want to act or that humans are naturally going to behave mm-hmm. in the context of this. I mean, it's, I think it's fair to say radically new technological environment. Yeah. And that it's, it's just humans being normal humans but in a new context. And so what things are humans going to want as they become more and more possible? And I think uh, whether it's not hoarding stuff anymore or, you know, going back to an oral culture, it all is, he certainly lays out a case that is extremely persuasive. And, you know, I think we're both willing listeners, Mm -hmm. but still, oh, the irony that we both listened to the book. Yeah. um, Pro tip, (laughs) if you do listen to the book, play it back at, at a one and a half speed at least yeah he's a slow talker um but yeah i mean it's i think it's a great book definitely definitely uh worth reading and a good gift for the uh the the holdouts the technology holdouts in your life especially if they're in business i think this is a good book for for business owners to read yeah i think so anyway we've been talking for a while (laughs) is there anything else we should say before we stick a pin in it uh no i think that's it All right. That's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us again next week for Terrifying Robot Dog. Bye. Bye. Would you like to see Kelly and I in your inbox once a week? Get new episodes delivered straight to you with show notes, links to additional content, and more. Plus, you can reply to any message to suggest topics for future episodes. To get the inside track, go to terrifyingrobotdog.com and look for the Keep Me in the Loop button. That URL again is terrifyingrobotdog.com. 